What morning, Joe? Um, I hurt my back this morning, so I'm feeling a bit um, funny, but um, hopefully I'll, I'll, it might make the sermon shorter, so that could help. <clears throat> Let me pray as we start. Father, thank you for your words, which we know are true. Uh, we find them difficult sometimes. We find it hard to put things together. And yet we know that you speak wisely, lovingly. You speak good words and that you are in charge. Father, give us uh, eyes and ears and hearts to receive your word well. And give me uh, wisdom to speak what is true, what is here. And not from my own uh, uh, mind or invention. And we pray this for Jesus' sake, our loving Saviour. Amen. Right, if you're a, the kind of person that likes to have put a kind of a, a nice thought on a fridge magnet, um, I think you need to beware. It can be a dangerous activity. Look at verse 6, chapter 3, verse 6, the second half of verse 6. It says, if a disaster occurs in a city... Hasn't the Lord done it? Now, if you made that into a fridge magnet and stuck it on your fridge, um, if a disaster occurs in a city, hasn't the Lord done it? And then your Palestinian friends come round and they see on your fridge uh, this uh, phrase, if a disaster occurs in a city, hasn't the Lord done it? And their mind thinks Gaza. Now, what would that feel like to them? Wouldn't that feel terrible? Wouldn't it feel as if you're um, rejoicing that so many people have been killed and that you're loving that idea? So we need to be careful when we take a Bible verse and stick it on a fridge or have it as the kind of the, the motivating drive for the day, whatever it is. Uh, these are words from God. We need to take them seriously. But we, don't, we want to be careful not to isolate them and make them into something they're not. So we need to carefully grasp what's going on here. That seems to me to be the big phrase that stands out in this, in this section. So we're going to um, hopefully see it in its proper place and rejoice in God, uh, even in this verse. There's nine questions in this section, uh, just nine verses, but there's nine questions in it. And we'll, we'll, we'll work through them, uh, the questions briefly, and then kind of try and pull it together. But it starts off, first of all, I think very easily, very clearly. Uh, listen to this message that the Lord has spoken against you Israelites. So God is speaking to the Israelites. Not Israel today, but to the Israelites 700 years before Jesus came. So a long, long time ago. Uh, chapter 1, verse 1 of Amos tells us exactly the dates because it mentions two kings of the northern and southern kingdom and, and we know their dates. So God's speaking to the Israelites a long time ago and he clarifies, because the Israelites could mean the northern kingdom, but he clarifies it by saying, against you Israelites, against the entire clan that I brought out from the land of Egypt. So it's all of uh, the Israelite, the 12 tribes, Israel and Judah as it was in, in Amos's day. So God is saying here, I'm giving this message through Amos 
to all of you who belong to me that I rescued from Egypt. So see the first point that God's making? I'm your savior. I saved you, you in particular. And that's who I'm talking to. And it comes clear, verse 2. He says, almost kind of pinning this down more carefully, God says to these Israelites, I have known only you. I have known. Now, that doesn't mean he, he was ignorant of everybody else in the world. What it means is, I have been intimate with only you. In other words, I have picked and worked with and loved and cared for only you. Out of all the clans of the earth, only you. But then comes the kind of the, the punchline. Therefore, I will punish you for your iniquities. Now, hopefully that makes sense. God is not saying, oh, those baddies out there, I'm going to um, hurt them. God is saying, you've been with me. I've cared for you. I've rescued you. I've given you freedom. I've given you peace. I've looked after you. I've betrothed myself to you. You are mine. I am yours. But because of your behavior, because of how you work your attitude, I am going to punish you. So it's like within a family, the parent has to discipline the child. There has to be a sense of responsibility together in the family. And God is, I mean, elsewhere in the prophets is pretty clear, and elsewhere in Amos it's pretty clear, that God identifies the issues to show that the people, his own people, that he loves have been turning away from him. So first of all, what we see is this is a, it's an internal conflict we're observing. God speaking against his own people and saying, you are my people and therefore I'm punishing you. And then he begins the first of the nine questions. And I think the first question ties in a little bit. Can two walk together without agreeing to meet? Well, of course they can't. The expected answer is no. And it's as if God is saying, we can't walk together, you Israelites and me, because you won't. You're not here. When I'm walking, you're somewhere else. And where you're walking, I'm not going to go there. Can two walk together without agreeing to meet? Of course not. The obvious answer, the way the question's put, the answer has to be no. And then you get... Five more questions, all expecting the answer, no. All very obvious questions. Does a lion roar in the forest when it has no prey? Imagine a lion you know, creeping about to try and um, find some prey to surprise. But if he's roaring, the prey will know he's there and run away. So does a lion roar in the forest when there's no prey? Of course not, that would be stupid. The lion knows better than that. Verse 3, does a young lion growl from its lair unless it has captured something? Now, I don't know enough about animals and lions and so on, but I'm guessing what this is, is the lion has caught something, it's brought it back to its lair, and it's purring, it doesn't have lions purr, but cats purr, you know, it's kind of enjoying, making noise to enjoy the feast it's got for itself. So does a young lion growl with, from its lair unless it has captured something? Well, no, it won't. The obvious answer Verse 5, does a bird land in a trap on the ground if there's no bait for it? Well, birds aren't that stupid. They're not going to say, oh, there's a nice trap. I'll go and you get caught. 
And then verse 5, no, not verse 5, second half of verse 5. Um, does a trap spring from the ground when it has caught nothing? There's nothing to trigger the trap. Does it close? And uh, No, it doesn't. See, all these things, they're so obvious that by this point, as listeners were thinking, what on earth, what's the point of saying this over and over and over again? It's so obvious. Now, these questions are very obvious. Then the next two questions in verse 6 are questions that expect the answer, yes. If a ram's horn is blown in the city, aren't the people afraid? Well, of course they are. This just reminds me of your films you see of the Second World War and the sirens uh, in London going off. And I can imagine, I mean, Sue's mum went through this um, in London during the war as a child. The siren goes, you have to run to the air raid shelter in, the, in your garden. And the sense of fear that must have come every single time that siren went. Are you afraid? Of course. So if a ram's horn is blown in a city, the warning sign that the enemy is approaching, aren't people afraid? Of course they are. You'd be an idiot not to be afraid. In the second half of verse 6, if disaster occurs in the city, hasn't the Lord done it? Well, of course he has. That's obvious too, because God is in control. But see the way Amos has brought us to this point where we, we find ourselves saying, well, of course the Lord has done it because of the way he's made the questions. We fall into the idea of saying, well, yes, is the answer to that question too. If disaster occurs in the city, hasn't the Lord done it? Yes. But then we're caught short because we don't like that. We in our age don't like that. When something terrible happens, our instinct is to say, Lord, stop it. Don't let it happen. Then the danger is if, it, if a disaster happens, we tend to think, why couldn't God stop that? Is he helpless? But Amos, or God through Amos, has brought us through these questions to this sense of, yes, we know that when disaster occurs in a city, actually it's the Lord's doing. We don't know how, we don't necessarily know why, but we cannot deny that the Lord has done it because the Lord is sovereign, is in charge. And also because of verses 1 and 2, because the Lord is punishing his own people that he loves because they have destroyed the relationship. See, we, we mustn't forget those first two verses. This is aimed at God's people, the Israelites who have turned away from him. But once verse uh, 6b, the second half of verse 6 is kind of uh, out of the bag in a way, then it, it's, things follow from that. Verse 7, Indeed, the Lord does nothing without revealing his counsel to his servants, the prophets. So disaster occurs in the city, end of verse 6. Hasn't the Lord done it? Yes. The Lord does nothing. Nothing will happen except what God does. And God won't do any of it without telling somebody first. And who does he tell? He tells his prophets, his spokesmen. Interesting that, isn't it? If we need to know, God tells us through his prophets. 
And then, verse 8, two more questions, the final two questions. A lion has roared, who will not fear? This reminds us of beginning of verse 6. A lion has roared, who will not fear? In other words, God has spoken. God, the lion, the big lion, the scary lion, the lion who can destroy anything, he has roared. Who will not fear? Well, the answer is no sane person will refuse. We will listen because God the lion is roaring. Then uh, the second half, verse 8, the Lord God has spoken, repeating the idea of the lion has roared. The Lord God has spoken. Who will not prophesy? And the, the obvious answer to that is, well, no sane prophet will refuse to prophesy. God has spoken, so the words of God will come through the prophet, or for us in our time, through the words in Scripture. Now, all this leads us to, I think, a very uncomfortable place in our day and age. Because it seems to me that we, in our time, uh, we've grown up with this, all of us, and the past few generations, we feel we're entitled. We're entitled to a few basic human rights, you might say, uh, like, for example, happiness. We're entitled to live a, a life um, fr of freely, to live a life of safety. We're entitled to somewhere to live, to not be molested by neighbors or whatever it might be. These are entitlements which we decide are absolutely necessary. These are basic. The government should provide it. God, of course, will provide it. Uh, and we should provide it for ourselves and help each other to, to have these things. So if you like, our, our, our life thinking, our life assumptions are these. Basic sense of peace and security. But I want to suggest that those are false assumptions. They're not assumptions we find in the Bible or in Amos. See, we start with ourselves, with humanity, and we say we have certain rights, and these, these are them, this security, uh, this preservation of security is a right we have, and therefore we expect it. But the Bible starts not with humanity, but with God, and with His life assumptions, and His, God's life thinking. It's basically God's in charge. God calls the shots. Human beings are less than God. We exist under his guidance, under his word, under his control, under his care. We are less than him. We're less important than him. And we are dependent on him at every single level. As soon as we break from him and declare independence... We're in deep trouble. We have lost the ground on which we stand. So our assumptions are we have ground to stand on and we decide. God's assumptions are I am in charge and you have nothing without me. So that means when a disaster happens, something awful happens, from our own perspective, we shake our fist at God and say this is wrong. 
you shouldn't allow this to happen. What are you doing? How dare you? Why don't you stop this? Whereas if we have embraced God's assumptions, the Bible's assumptions, we will still look up to God, but we will say, I don't know what's going on. I don't get this. You know what you're doing. You understand. Let me trust you. Let me bow to your ways and your desires and trust you. God is the one who knows and understands. We are the ones who are ignorant. Therefore, we look to him. Actually, we're not entitled to anything. But we're lucky that the God who is in control is a God who has shown himself to be good and shown himself to be just and shown himself to be loving. Otherwise, we are at his, well, we're at his mercy, whatever. But if his mercy is a harsh mercy, we have no hope. But Amos, even in this little section, reveals clearly, God says, I have brought you out of Egypt. I have known only you. God has personally come and identified himself with us, has embraced us, brought us into his family. If we're Christians today, through the New Testament system, if you like, we can say the same thing. We belong to him. He has known only us. We are his people. And therefore, and this is the big question we have to face, therefore, is he coming against us in judgment? Because we are his people. Because he loves us. Now, the Israelites were, had been warned for generations that they were turning against God. They were, they were mentioning God a lot. They were fulfilling elements of the practicalities of worship in the temple and so on. But they, were, they had devised their own system of living, keeping God at a distance, keeping God out of the picture so that they looked like Christians. They might sound like Christians, but actually they were completely involved in their own lives and world and expecting God to bless them, but not doing anything to show they cared about God or were interested in Him. And I think that's where this hits us. What kind of Christian life do we lead? What's going on inside us? Do we function as if we weren't Christians, and yet we assume God should care for us, should look after us, should bless us? We need to have a a relationship with God where he can say to us, I have known only you, but where we can say to him, I know only you. Only you matter. Only you matter when it comes down to it. Nothing else. Everything else will find its place because you matter. Nothing else will come above my relationship with you. So if a disaster occurs in the city, hasn't the Lord done it? Well, of course he has. Because that's his right, his privilege, his honor to bring justice over against our sin. Has the lion roared? Well, yes, he has. Will we fear? Yes, we should. But because we are trusting in Jesus, as I trust we are, we're putting our hope in him, in the, the Savior God has sent, then we have Hope, firm hope that God is 
on our side as we put our trust in him. We have to cling on to him, hold on to him, rather than expect and presume. I want to come now just to the last point, a slightly different tack. When we come to passages like this, especially the one uh, that says, if a disaster occurs in a city, hasn't the Lord done it? The danger is we, we as Christians think, oh yeah, we know God, we know why this has happened. We know we can understand what's happening in, in Israel and Gaza or in Ukraine or anywhere else. Because your God is in control, therefore he's judging Ukrainians or judging uh, Palestinians or something. But that's dangerous. God told Amos why he had an issue with Israel. God hasn't told us why he has an issue with Palestine or Gaza or Ukraine or anywhere else. We don't know, and it's wrong to decide we do know. And it's not just us. It's not just that we haven't got the insight Amos had. Jesus didn't have the insight Amos had. Because Jesus, now turn with me to Luke chapter 13. Um, This is, I think, a very helpful passage in questions like this. Because the New Testament, we need to, I think, recognize the New Testament handles this differently from the Old. So Luke chapter 13, uh, verses 1 to 5, I'm going to read to you. Luke 13, 1 to 5. At that time, some people came and reported to him, to Jesus, about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. And he responded to them, Jesus responded to them, do you think that these Galileans were more sinful than all the other Galileans because they suffered these things? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all perish as well. Or, another story, or those 18 that the tower in Siloam fell on and killed. So Jesus is saying this, do you think, he says to the people, that they were more sinful than all the other people who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all perish as well. You see, there's two stories that Jesus tells. And he starts off by saying, this is what you people tend to think. Uh, the first instance, it's a bit unclear, but I think what's going on there is that some Galileans who were you know, Jewish people sacrificing according to Jewish uh, laws and so on, Pilate had somehow decided he didn't like them and Pilate had killed them so that their blood of death mixed with the sacrifice blood that they were, they were dealing with. So can the blood of the animals, the blood of the Galileans mixed together. So it's a very graphic way of, of saying Pilate killed some people, executed some people. And then uh, Jesus said, do you think, or, and probably it's, you seem to think this is a standard way of thinking, do you think that these Galileans were more sinful than all the other Galileans because they suffered these things? In other words, did God target them because they were worse sinners? And Jesus' answer is no. And the second uh, situation uh, a bit more straightforward. There's a tower uh, that fell over, badly built, presumably, or just too old. 
and 18 people were killed. I've turned too many pages. 18 people were killed. And Jesus says, do you think, uh, which seems to be, this is what you do think, that those who died were more sinful than the other people who live in Jerusalem? And Jesus says, no. So because some judgment falls on a person, we cannot say they deserved it any more than anyone else. We cannot say God targeted them because Jesus won't say that. Jesus isn't willing to say that. But see what Jesus does say? And and the the two verses are exactly identical. Verse 3 and verse 5, the response to both those little stories. Jesus says, No, I tell you, so it wasn't because they were worse sinners, but unless you repent, you will all perish as well. So what is the normal stance of the Christian? It's a stance of repentance. So it's never saying, I have my rights, I don't deserve this. It's always saying, I am a sinner, I will turn to God in repentance, looking for mercy. Uh, No judgment that comes from God is wrong. But every judgment that comes from God is not ours to decide whose fault it was. God is the one who calls the shots. We are the ones who look at the situation and say, I must repent or I too will perish. Judgment is coming. Jesus will judge us. We need to be aware of that and be repentant. Let's stop and pray. Let's just think of the Amos picture first, um, going back to that. Father, we thank you that um, you made clear through Amos that you loved Israel so much and therefore you challenged them with judgment. Father, thank you that through Jesus you love us so much. And therefore you threaten judgment on us. So Father, we ask that we will be repentant that we will look to see if we are living without reference to you, that we will check all the time, am I putting God first? Is Christ my first love? Is all I do done in reference to him? Father, help us to see clearly, not from our own perspective, but from yours, that we may live faithful repentant lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So now, I sing a song, recognizing God's power in the lion.